Hey there, everybody. Welcome back to Jetlag. This is Andrew Smith. I'm here in sunny San Diego. and uh, We're about to kick off yet another episode. Uh, I've been doing some traveling recently. Um, just got back from Wyoming and Colorado myself. And I'm here with Larry, who's back down under in Australia. Yes, back once again here in uh sunny Sydney <laughs> uh, after being on the road for the last couple of weeks traveling around uh, the US and Canada and um, we're, you know in, in your guys neck of the woods well speaking of your guys uh, uh, today we're here with our guest Coleman Collins who is a former UX and strategy consultant for a big consumer facing uh, big consumer facing companies but has transitioned and he's the author of a forthcoming book called The Road Warrior, which is about staying healthy and productive on the road, which is a perfect fit for what we talk about here on Jetlag. Um, he's also the co-founder of Ohm Coach, which is a behavioral change-based health and fitness coaching service. So we're going to be talking about all those projects today and how they came to be. So welcome to the show, Coleman. It's awesome to have you. Thanks for having me, guys. I am in, just for the record, since everyone else did it, I am in Chicago. It is abnormally warm here. Uh, what's the temp? Uh, the high was 105 today in parts of Chicago. It only got up to about 95 where I live, though. That's insane. What's that in Celsius for our non-US listeners? It's like 35, 38. Also known as no thank you zone. Holy crap. Well, cool, man. Um, you have an awesome story on paper, you know, going from strategy and consulting, uh, you know, in tech and for big companies and in UX and all that. How do you go from doing that to writing a book about staying healthy on the road and and getting into, you know, behavioral change based health and fitness and all that? Yeah. So I, this book is really a, a chronicle of what I learned over the what was it almost half a decade of, of doing this job. Uh, I, I was on the road, you know, four or five days a week, 40 weeks a year. And it took me a long time to figure out sort of how to do that well, how to do that in a way that was sustainable and kept me healthy and sane. And even still, I felt like I was kind of fighting an uphill battle, a losing battle. And I was also watching my colleagues, my friends get, you know, have growing waistlines and get increasingly unhappy and sick and tired and ultimately unproductive, right? Uh, Not only were they kind of feeling bad, that directly translated to poor work performance as well. So... I wanted to do something about it. I, I have a background in health and fitness. I actually, my summer job when I was in college was working at a weight loss camp and my dad's a health nut. It's, it's in the blood, so to speak. And so I decided with my brother who had just left a, a different, a startup, a media startup at the time, that we were going to try this thing and, and start a company that uh, focused on helping people get healthier and while they led busy lives. And Part of that was I wanted to sort of write down all the stuff I learned, figuring out how to travel well, how to travel healthily and still enjoy yourself and still be productive. And so that's what the book is. It's sort of done with the draft. turns out editing a book is just as hard as writing it. So that's what we're doing right now. And it's hopefully going to be out sometime toward the end of the year. It covers everything from, you know, eating well on the road to uh, fitness, uh, you know, doing activities, staying, sitting active to packing, to, uh, productivity and stress management, things like that. Yeah, that's really interesting to me. I mean, I've just come back from a couple of weeks off 
on the road. And um, I always put on weight when I travel, especially when I travel America. <laughs> and I'm, I'm eating those really rich foods. And I mean, thank thank God I walk as, as much as I do when I travel. Otherwise, I'd be half, you'd have to roll me home. <laughs> yeah, well, it's not like our portions are that big or anything. No, of course not. Just the largest in the world and four times as big as they were in the 70s. <laughs> it's all about hey, the leftovers. It's yeah, all it's all about leftovers. it's all about quantity, man. Quantity over over quality. Although, value, you know, value for money. Point. Quantity has a quality all its own. <laughs> well, that's it's it's funny because I think um, there's a huge difference between just traveling here and there versus traveling all the time. So, for example, you know, uh, Larry and I met up in Vegas um, not long ago, and we decided to you know cash in, as you could say, where we ate a lot of food, we got some beers, and walked around the street legally mind you um and we had a good time but it it was definitely not something that would be good in the health department but it was fun and i think a lot of people do that they have a one-off trip and they just want to do as much as they can and have a great time but when does it transition from wanting to do that to not wanting to do that is it something that's kind of it forces your hand as in you start to feel really bad because I think a lot of people would really struggle with stopping themselves from indulging in all the things available to them on the road or when they're traveling. Um, you know, what do you think about that? For sure. Yeah. The, well, the big thing is you, yes, you will eventually feel your hand forced. If you, I feel like everyone, myself included, right. First, when you, start traveling for work for the first time, or you only do it infrequently, you're going to indulge. You're going to enjoy the place that you're you're in. You're going to find the fun things. And when you're on vacation, I fully encourage people to do that, right? There's nothing you can do in a weekend or two weeks that if your life is good the rest of the time, if you eat fairly well, if you exercise fairly regularly, that is, is going to be a permanent problem, right? The problem comes when you're traveling, let's just say, even a quarter of the time, especially once you get past like a majority of the time. Uh, every week or every other week, it, it, it's not vacation anymore. Right. And this is an important mental shift. It, it's not vacation and you can't treat it like vacation. And the problem is the only training most of us have for travel is vacation, which should be fun, which should be indulgent, which should, you know, have a couple of beers and go walk around Vegas and and eat the buffet and do all that stuff. Uh, Enjoy yourself. That's what vacation's for. But just because you're in a different place doesn't mean you're on vacation. Imagine if you were to sort of have a long-term travel experience, right? If you were to actually spend three months somewhere and try and live in that city, you wouldn't act like you were on vacation after some point, maybe the first week, but after that you wouldn't. Just because you're going home every week in the cadence of a business traveler, that doesn't mean it's any different. And you can make that choice proactively or you can let it be made for you. And I I prefer the former. Mm -hmm. So, when you're assembling a list or authoring a book about this topic, what are some of the big things that, you know, are recommended to people right away? Well, that mental shift I mentioned is a really big one. It's a really, really important one to understand that you're not on vacation and to, to tailor your behavior accordingly. Pretend like you're at home. What would you do at home? Um, and no, it's not a perfect metaphor, but it works for the most part. You still have to eat out. You still have to, live in a hotel and, and use a hotel gym if you're going to be active. Well, you don't have to, you can, you can go visit a place you can, or sorry, you can go find a gym. And I actually encourage that if, if it's sort of in your, 
your fitness practice to lift weights, I completely encourage people to go find a gym because it's also a local community. Uh, especially if you go to some of the like weirdo black iron powerlifting gyms or CrossFit gym or whatever you're into, uh, that's a local community that can, that can then give you local recommendations as to how to eat well there, right? You, you got to live like the locals a little bit. Uh, past that, it's really just about damage mitigation. A lot of it, uh, being on an airplane is fundamentally bad for your body and you got to do stuff about that while you're on the flight after you're on the flight. Um, and then once you're sort of in the place you're going to be, it's the same thing, right? You're, you've got to sort of steal and get away with the activity that you're going to do, the, the eating well that you're going to do, because you're, you're in a bad position no matter what. It's really just a matter of finding the ways that you can make it happen. So don't, don't think about having to go to the gym every day, hotel gym or, you know, actual drive to a gym. Think about what are the small ways you can add activity into your life. Uh, can you walk to, like Larry was saying, can you walk everywhere? Can you walk to your client? Can you walk to dinner? Can you walk to, can you just take the stairs when you're, when you're at the hotel? Sure, you know, two flights, four flights of stairs a day isn't going to, you know, dramatically change anything, but it's better than nothing. And it's the same with eating, right? You're going to be in a, a restaurant, so all you have to do is, is think well about that. Uh, or don't eat at a restaurant. I actually eat a lot of my meals on the road at grocery stores uh, and chain restaurants because I just because I know it's going to be there because it's like I'm at home, uh, even though I'm not in a different place. And that's not to say I don't go exploring. It's just that, you know, I don't need to do that every meal of every day. I, I distinguish the idea of eating and dining. And most of the time I'm just eating. And when I'm dining, I'm not worrying about what I'm eating. And, and by separating that in, in your mind, it, it helps you kind of understand what the goal of the meal is. Is it just fuel? If it's fuel, then, you know, it should be pretty functional. If it's dining, enjoy yourself, have the beers, you know, have, have the, have the fun entree, have a dessert event. It doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. uh, as long as you're not doing that a majority of the time, which is the problem a lot of people run into because there's so many great new options because you're in a new place. It, it's tough. You have to, you have to discipline yourself a little bit, but that's the whole, oh, I, when you mentioned Dome Coach, this is the, I mean, this is the blurb I told you to say. It's behavioral change focused. And what, what we mean by that is basically the idea that if you're making this as a conscious choice all the time, you're going to fail more often than you want to. But if you try and make it a habit, if you try and make it a behavioral change, it gets a lot easier, which is also to say that it's going to take time to figure this out, right? Anyone who starts this is not going to bat a thousand right away. I certainly didn't. Right. So what would you say to somebody who, does um you know struggle with that i mean in a lot of ways it's similar to people who say they fail at diets or, or whatever have you uncovered any sort of hacks if you will or maybe um some lightly discussed secret that you've uncovered that really makes the biggest difference yeah so i mean i don't strongly believe in in secrets of the health and fitness industry i think that's a little bit it gets, it gets tricky, right? Because someone tells you, oh, I've got a thing that no one else knows. It's probably them trying to sell you something. Right. Um, that said, um, yeah. It, tell us the, about the thing that no one else knows. <laughs> tell us about exactly. the secret. <laughs> well, it, it's not something no one else knows. It's just something people know that they should do and don't, which is pre-commit. Uh, make a decision beforehand and then stick to it. Uh, that is ultimately what a habit is. It's just a decision you made beforehand a long time ago that became so often the decision you made that it's automatic and to change it, you have to rewire that you have to make a new decision and then find strategies to stick to it. Uh, there are all sorts of strategies you can use. One of them is to make the change very, very small. Uh, another one is to only change part of the, the habit or behavior. So say 
I've got a big problem with finding donuts in the break room and then eating them, uh, which I did at one time. And uh, so what you can do is, you know, you've got so a, a habit structurally is three things. It's a trigger, it's an action, and it's a reward. And what you can do is just change the action and keep the reward or modify the reward slightly. So for example, you still, you get in the, your trigger is you get into the break room and you see donuts. The action is going to be eating the donuts and the reward is going to be having had a donut, right? And all of the, the pleasant biochemical things that happen in response to that. Uh, so what you can do is just have half a donut. Consistently just have half a donut for a while. Or you can even get weirder about it and make a reward because all your brain wants is just that boost of ser- serotonin, that boost of dopamine, Right. Rather. Um, so what you can do is have another fun way to do that. Uh, reward yourself in a different way. If you're a person who's, who's fairly giving, find someone to give the donut to. Now, that's not a great long-term strategy, but for the time, just to, to break the habit, to change the habit, it's something you can do. Uh, a, a better one is to, this is one that uh, I recommended to one of our coaching clients a while back. Uh, he now, when he, when he finds food in the break room, he picks it up, he takes it, and he walks it somewhere else and he sets it back down. And then he does a little dance, literally does a little dance, like a success <laughs> dance for not eating it. But there's enough of, there's enough similarity there that he, that he picks it up. He takes it and he puts it down somewhere else that his brain doesn't realize the difference so much. It, he doesn't feel like he's denied himself because he, he has this happy moment. He has the same behavior more or less. The reward has just changed. He's not eating the donut anymore. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, but I guess <laughs> it's really going to be different for everybody, isn't it? Absolutely. So- it's very, very individual. So that brings up uh, the point with, with Ohm Coach. How do you deal with all the different people um, who you work with? And, and how do you find these people as well? How does how's that process work? Um, so the thing about it is the individual challenges are different, but the, the, the wiring is roughly the same. And, and a lot of what we do is, is coaching, like we said. Um, we, we have a, a sort of an educational system, and a lot of it is helping them understand what the, the tools and tactics and strategies they have at their disposal are, and then making their own plans for success. We work with them to make the plans. We don't give them a plan. That's sort of how we distinguish it from traditional coach or traditional personal training, for example. Um, they've got to come up with their own strategy and we just you know, guide them towards it. Uh, that does a couple of things. One, it's something that they already know is within their, their uh, capability because they came up with it. Uh, and it also, it, we are experts in behavioral change. We are experts in health and fitness and what works and what doesn't. We've seen it across a population of, you know, this point, a few dozen people. Uh, but we're not experts on your life. So we let you be the expert on your life. Uh, in terms of where we get these people, the internet, uh, <laughs> we do a lot of writing, a lot of content marketing, if you want to call it that. Uh, and, and that's sort of how we find people mostly. They, they find right. us after they read something or share something or what have you. What does the, what does the average person kind of look like? What is their life like? Uh, so the early ones were all, uh, professional business travelers. A lot of my old colleagues, unsurprisingly. And then as we sort of move forward, it's a lot of people who work a lot. Uh, it's, it's people who are otherwise successful and this is their sort of their last white whale. They can't figure out how to do this. Uh, and, and they're trying to apply the same strategies they do to success in the rest of their life to this. And it, it, it's tough, right? Because you, someone who's highly successful and highly driven can often just say, I'm going to do something and then do it. And then they do it. But behavioral change doesn't work like that. And, and fitness and diet don't work like that, really. 
just because it's deeper than wanting to do something and then say you're going to do it. You have to find strategies to basically trick your brain into agreeing with you that this is a thing that's worth doing because sitting on the couch is easier and more fun than going for a run uh, because eating the donut is easier and more fun than going and finding a salad. And you, you have to find strategies to trick yourself into doing these things. And then over time, it becomes your new automatic, it becomes your new normal, and then it gets easier. Uh, but but we get a lot of people who are who've been trying for a very long time to white knuckle their way into behavioral change, and that's just not how it works. It's got to be small, it's got to be slow, and it's got to be strategic. You've got to pre-commit to things. You've got to make small, distinct, habitual changes based on skills and behaviors and habits, rather than just saying, "Now I'm a person who works out," because you're going to do that. You're going to work out every day for seven you know seven days a week for three weeks, and then not again. And what good did that do you? And right. one thing that I struggle with when I'm traveling is time management. You're packing your days full of meetings. You're trying to make the most of the trip for work purposes. Sometimes even having a proper sleep is difficult purely based on your schedule. So, you know, how is time management important in fitting in what you need to do to uh, maintain that uh, physical and mental health while you're traveling? Oh, extremely. It's, um, yeah, I think you know the answer. It's important. It's really important. Uh, how to do it is a lot harder. Um, there, there are some strategies that are in the book around this, uh, primarily around kind of helping, helping people understand and helping people prioritize in a way that helps them understand that raw time is not your greatest asset. In fact, it's, it's the one thing you can't get back. And just because you're spending more time on something and, even when you're traveling, you're trying to get the most meetings in, understanding that picking the top um, 50% of those meetings, they're going to have the biggest return. And then spending your time resting, relaxing, focusing on those meetings, rather than trying to cram pack every single day with as much stuff as possible, actually produces better business outcomes. Um, because you're focusing on the important things, right? This is a there's this great book called Average is Over by this author, Tyler Cowen, who ha he has this core premise that um, raw time and raw force are not the way to make people successful in modern workplaces, technologically advanced workplaces. And I completely agree with this. And, and so the, the, the problem is actually time management isn't the right... What am I trying to say here? <laughs> Sorry. Um, Time management isn't the right question to be asking, right? It, it's not, how do I get more out of my day? It's how do I do less and, and maintain the same level of success? What's the stuff I'm doing just because I think I should be doing it? Because it because being busy feels good. Because being busy is ultimately a form of, of laziness. It's, it's not being selective with your time. And that's, of course, a lot easier said than actually acted upon. But that's sort of my, my general take on that idea. Mm -hmm. Awesome. So... This is a uh, kind of funny transition here because every week we always do a second half. It's a total subject switch, and we want to talk to the our you know our, our guest about it. Um, but it's somewhat related here because you know in, in prepping for this episode, actually, one of the perils of traveling is that you know not everything works out, and so we tried to schedule this podcast earlier on, and then you know Larry had some crappy Wi-Fi, and it just couldn't happen. But in the meantime, Coleman and I had a good thirty plus minute conversation about craft beer. Uh, 
and it's something that has been exploding all over the world. Um, in fact, the USA, take it or leave it, um, you might have a different opinion here, it's actually turned into the mecca for beer on the entire planet. Um, and there's some math to back that up. We now have 5,600 plus breweries in this country and growing. Uh, no sign of stopping, really. People are wondering when the bubble's gonna burst. And there's a lot of reasons for it, but it's not just here. It's actually exploding all over the world. And so all of us being travelers, uh, you know, we love to go and, you know, have a few beers while we're out. But more importantly than that, now there's actually a lot of new beer to check out. It's going the way of dining. And, you know, when you visit any other country, there's so many breweries to check out. And even more fun about it when they, is when they integrate their own personal twist, their, their culture into the brewing. I wanted to bring up a few things on this topic. And one of them is definitely health because, you know... A lot of people believe that, well, if you're trying to stay healthy, well, you can't drink beers. But for some of us, especially me, and I think Larry might agree on this, not drinking beer while traveling would be like a mortal sin. I, I There's just <laughs> no way I couldn't do that. Um, and in fact, a lot of my... I actually throw my hat in that ring too. Okay, good. So that, that, makes, that makes three of us on the same page here. Um, but first off, Let's let's talk about that real quick, and then we'll transition to some other stats. Um, but what is your thought about you know drinking beers or just drinking in general while traveling? Because a lot of people, you know, for us, uh, as we just said, it's kind of a a necessary thing. It's something we really really want to do. Uh, what what do you think about that? Yeah, I, I think especially in the states, which is where I've done a lot of my traveling, sort of finding the local beer scene and learning what they're doing that's unique to them. Um, is really, really cool and interesting and a great way to see the culture of a city. Like I was saying, it's, it's a great way to find a local scene because the brewers all know each other. And they, you ask one guy who's working at a brewery, hey, what's the good food in town? What's the good beer in town? What's the good things to see in town? They're tapped in normally. Pun not intended. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, alcohol is undeniably bad for you. Uh, but... So are a lot of things. So is virtually everything in the right quantity. Uh, the dose makes the poison. If you're reasonable about it, if you're having a few beers a few times a week and you adjust your diet otherwise to make sure that you're not, you know, accidentally, because I mean, some of these craft IPAs are very high on calories because they're so high on alcohol and carbs. Um, as long as you're, you're sort of planning for it and you're not doing it every single day, having five beers, there's no real reason why you shouldn't be able to, um, you just have to, you know, plan for it really, and and not overindulge, right? Moderation is is a great thing. Some people can't, right? And and that's that's really tough for some people to just have a few. Uh, I don't have good strategies for them, uh, but if if you can just have a few, there's no problem to. Hmm. So, is there such a thing as uh, being able to cancel out beers? So for example, if you are in South Korea or Singapore, there's a very high chance that you're going to be walking a lot, unless you Uber or taxi or whatever. But, you know, the subway and walking is a main method of transportation for a lot of people. Um, Does that benefit your uh, intake? Are you able to squeeze in an extra beer or two because you walked for two hours? Well, so, I mean, generally speaking, physical activity as a way to offset calorie intake is, is for people who are bad at math. Uh, it, it, <laughs> I'm bad. I'm bad at math. Then I say great, perfect. 
I mean, so literally jogging for an hour is only going to offset a beer jogging for an hour, not walking. Um, but you can just plan for it in your food, eat a little less, make sure you're still getting the same amount of protein. And it also, it depends on what you mean by offset the beer, right? So there's kind of three things I think about. There's like the immediate metabolic and, and health effects, right? Which are fairly easily, um, mitigated, right? You just got to hydrate, get some water soluble vitamins back in you because uh, alcohol is a diuretic. It's, it easily reduces those. So that's vitamin B, vitamin C. You can just take a multivitamin. It's not that hard. Uh, that's easy. Uh, as long as you're not overdoing it, you'll be fine. And this is, this is what causes hangovers, by the way. Uh, from a calorie perspective, there's a lot of different ways to do it. Yes, if you walk enough, you can offset it, but you can also just plan to eat a little less. Uh, make sure you're still getting enough protein and, and cut back on the, on the portion of pasta or rice or potatoes or whatever. Uh, and you'll be fine. And also, uh, and then from a athletic performance or sports performance perspective, there's just sort of a maximum threshold. As long as you're keeping it under, say, I don't know, for me, the perfect number of beers is always three, like three in a night. And sure, I go over sometimes, but I try not to very often. <laughs> um, as long as you keep it within a reasonable perspective, then you're not going to have any trouble with, you know, working out in the morning. It's going to be fine. That that's very heartening. I feel better about myself. <laughs> I kind of treat it the same way when I'm traveling. I, I do try to just put a cap on what I do at night. And uh, often when I get back home, I'll try to cut it out completely depending on how, <laughs> how, how kind of crazy I went at the moment. I'm, uh, I'm cutting it out for a few weeks just because of that very reason. Um, and I mean, it's always good to give the body a break no matter whether you've been traveling or not. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I'm, I'm also a big fan of sort of what I call global moderation over local moderation. If you're not good at only having three beers a night, have seven once, realize you're going to have a bad Saturday, eat well for the rest of the week. You'll also be fine. I like, I like that line of thinking. I'm, I'm all about that. It's all about moderation. You can, you can be bad every once in a while. And I think the problem with so yeah, many of really the diets can. out there, the problem with so many of those fad diets is that they limit you completely from doing something that you naturally need so that when you come back to doing it again, you kind of go crazy and, and, and you start doing it more than you did before. Absolutely. You, yeah. you completely overdo it. Yeah. It, global moderation is also an option for sure. Uh, it, so the, the whole premise of the book is that you don't get that option if you're traveling all the time. Uh, so you have to you have to figure out at least some sort of strategy for, for local moderation. But if you're only traveling for two weeks, you know, three times a year, you, you can, you can actually sort of quote, make it up. Uh, it's possible. <laughs> I, I have a feeling I'm net negative right now, but <laughs> I'm just going to forget about that for the moment. Um, so do you guys know what the most popular beer is in the entire world? It's gotta be Chinese, right? I, I, uh, It'll be something really boring, like a bud or something. <laughs> it's going to be like Kingfisher. It's got to be Indian or Chinese just because of volume. Well, that's a really good place to go. Do you have any idea within that subset? No, that's that's my best guess. I'll, All right. Well, I'll, I'll let you know. Can I can I guess? Uh, Larry, can, can I, can yeah, I guess? guess. I'll, I'm just going to guess Sing Tao. That's, that's my guess. You are off by one. So Sing Tao is actually number two most... Uh, consumed and sold beer on the planet with a global market share of 2.8%. Um, more than doubling that? Uh, oh, barely. Barely barely under doubling that is a beer called Snow in China. So 
They uh, they take up 5.4% of the global market share of all beer on the planet. It's crazy. That's bonkers. Um, and we've never had it over here. We don't see it over here, but it is huge in China. Uh, and the, the volume has just exploded since 2005. And uh, in 2005, it was the 11th highest selling beer, and now it is number one by a huge margin. Uh, yeah, a lot of people think Bud Light and Budweiser, which makes total sense because Bud Light comes in at number three with 2.5%, and Budweiser right behind it at 2.3%. So, I mean, essentially the same company and this very similar beer have a combined nearly 5%. Um but number five is actually a beer called Skoll Lager. And it's a, it's a combination of British, Canadian, Swedish, and Belgian breweries in 1964. And it's a Pilsner, and it doesn't taste that good. <laughs> <laughs> Yanjing is another big one in China. We've got Heineken at seven. We've got Wow, Arby's. that's way higher than I would have guessed for Heineken. Yeah, it's, it's real big. A uh, global market share of 1.5%. Yeah, I guess they really are everywhere, aren't they? Yeah, and I think too, especially over here or the, throughout Europe, it's really a big brand and reputation thing. I mean, Heineken sponsors a lot of things. They sponsor yeah. t- teams and racers, and they're just really, really out there. They kind of remind me of like an alcoholic, non-fun Red Bull or something. <laughs> We've got Brahma at number nine, which is from Brazil, huh. and that's 1.5% global share, so that's the, uh, the biggest beer in Brazil. So it must be it must be a really affordable beer when you're talking about those sorts of numbers that's really kind of oh, yeah. tapping into the kind of poorer communities in, in a lot of these countries. Yeah. Vietnam, for example, uh, the most popular beer there is called Bia Hoi or Bia Hoa. I probably said that wrong. Um, but yeah, it's a local draft beer. It comes in at 3% alcohol content. And you're going to see, you know, 70-year-old guys sitting on stools, slamming, you know, 25 of them at a time in the heat. Well, what's happening is that all of those beers, it's just like here, right? We've got Coors Light, Bud Light, uh, Miller Light, every light in the world, um, and they're really, really struggling. So it turns out that in Australia, for example, consumption has dropped 9.5% between 2011 and 2016, but craft beer is still exploding. So, you know, I I wanted to know what you guys have thought. Have Have you noticed this? Have you seen... Any uh, any awesome beers in your travels? I mean, Larry, I guess it's probably pretty easy if you're coming over here. But, you know, aside from the U.S., what have so, you guys seen or heard? When I was in I was in Japan probably a little over a year ago, and I don't even think of Japan as – well, I think of Japan as like a tiny cups of, of pale lager kind of culture, right? Uh, yakitori, right. have the beer, have another beer. They're, they're tiny. You can have 18. But my friend who, who had, who'd been to Tokyo recently before me, he's like, I've got a craft beer bar for you. I've got a place that has 18 Japanese craft beers that aren't just Hitachino on draft. I was like, great, give me the address. Uh, there were a lot of Americans there, which is, I guess, unsurprising. We are, we are a culture that seems to seek that out. It's becoming, at least in my experience, a, a bit of a, a traveler destination thing. I know people that, that do trips to, to experience breweries, and I completely get it. When I'm when I'm traveling, at least recently, I it, it's not normally the focus of my trip, but I always try and make a, a point to spend like an afternoon checking out a couple of breweries. When I was just in Denver, I did that and we had a great time with it. Any favorites from that trip? Yeah, Black Project. Um, I think you mentioned it when we were talking. Actually, 
Andrew. Yeah. Uh, but my, so I have a buddy that works at a brewery out there called Fremantra. Mm-hmm. And they're only in Denver. They don't can or bottle. Oh, they do crowlers, but they don't really bottle yet. Um, and, and our whole sort of afternoon brewery plan was let's go visit AJ and then he'll give us a list. And he did exactly that. And he sort of knows what I like, right? I'm, I'm particularly into sort of the spontaneous and wild ales type stuff right now. And he's like, oh, you got to go to Black Project. It's down the street. It's wonderful. And it was, and it was. Uh, they only have four beers on, but every single one is perfect. Hmm. Four beers. Wow. That's extremely low for a bar and they're a, a brewery in the U.S. Yeah. Interesting. I went to a I went to a brewery in um oh where was I? Now I'm blanking on where I was. I was in Canada somewhere and we went to this one brewery and it literally had one beer. That's all was they did awesome? was one beer. <laughs> was it good? It 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 was a very good beer. But it wasn't memorable enough so you can get the name. No, I'm gonna have to look it up. <laughs> So yeah, I guess I guess there's still some uh, breweries on my travel bucket list. Uh, I was in Iceland last year and I missed one of them, um, but it's it's from a brewery that's called uh, Stedvi. It's like the D with the cross through it. It's like the TH sound, I guess. I probably said it wrong. Don't ask me. I'm not Icelandic. Um, but they've got a beer that <laughs> actually has uh, cut up whale testicles and it, they are smoked with sheep dung. And it's a, a seasonal beer, and they make it because those are two of the most Icelandic things possible. Uh, and they make it for a festival that celebrates all things Icelandic. But to me, I'm just like, how does it get any cooler than that? I mean, it's kind of nasty. I don't think that's going to be everybody's uh, cup of tea, per se. But um, I, I see something like that, I'm like, I have to try it. <laughs> same, same thing in, in Belgium, right? If you go to Belgium... Oh, of course. They're known for all sorts of beers, right? They're, they're famous. They don't need any help with beer. But a lot of people don't realize that they're also the sour beer capital of the world. And mm-hmm. they've been brewing in these attics, and they leave the windows open so the local yeast, natural yeast flying in the air, lands in their beer and ferments it spontaneously. Whoa. Um, and, you know, and one, beer, oh, one brewery in particular is called Cantillone, and they're kind of the you know top tier of of the sour beer world. But you know, when you go there and you realize, wow, you know what? This isn't just me trying to get drunk. This is a huge insight into the culture. And, uh, you know, I'm noticing that a beer tourism is really on the up. You know, you can go to a lot of countries now like Australia, especially the U S Europe and just do beer tours. But the cool part about it is the integration of the culture. For sure. Um, I, I'm just really looking forward to the expansion of that because I know when I travel, I end up making a big brewery list, but then I end up seeing all these things I never would have. I keep going to areas that I I never would have found, you know, the back streets or where the locals hang out. That's a really great point too, right? The, the breweries are never in the nice part of town because they can't afford the space. So you've got to get off the beaten track a little bit. And right. one thing I think is of interest as well is that from a legislative point of view, the laws have been changing to make it easier to create breweries in places that want to embrace it. So Manitoba, uh, Canada, where I was uh, earlier this year, they changed the laws so that you could pretty much build a brewery anywhere. It used to be exclusive to industrial areas, but now you can build a brewery pretty much anywhere, um, anywhere that 
will cater to it um, so long as it fits within some certain conditions. So now it was here in Manitoba that I found this beer that I was talking about earlier, this place called Little Brown Jug. They have the one beer. It's a 1919 Belgian pale ale, 1919 being the name of the beer. It's a reference to the year that there was a general strike uh, in the Winnipeg area. Um They've only been open for a few months, and that's why there's only the one beer. And the reason they've only been open for a few months is because this is a new law that has allowed them to open in the area they're at. So I think that's something that you're noticing all over uh, the world as well, is that one of the reasons we're getting a lot more breweries is because the law is allowing it. It's making it easier for these companies to, uh, to form. For sure. I think that's also why we're getting a huge sour beer surge in the U.S. right now. Um, because until not too recently, uh, it was very, very hard to make spontaneously fermented beer in the States because the, the laws just wouldn't allow it. Our food safety laws are super, super strict, right? We can't even have unpasteurized cheeses. And so to use a cool ship, which is the, like you're talking about, Andrew, the thing that Cantillon uses, which is a big flat vat that you just let air run over for a while. They're like, no way, absolutely not. Uh, but they've started proving the, the safety and doing other things to make sure that it works. And now we're starting to see this this interesting surge, or resurgence of spontaneously from De beer, which was only really allowed in Belgium because they've been doing it since 1500. Right. And yeah, I think I think it's a really good point. The laws are so different everywhere and the culture is, you know, very different everywhere. Like Japan has a really weird rule uh, where the minimum requirement for a brewery is 60,000 liters per year. So uh, if they don't make that much or more, they can't even legally be a brewery, which just seems weird to me. Like I, I, you would think it would be a cap or something, but that's actually the floor. Um, you know, in Australia, they've they've had the luxury. Well, I say they, the big brewers in Australia have had the luxury of looking at the U.S. and copying trends ahead of time. Uh, so a lot of the legis- legislation is actually built towards these multi-billion dollar big companies and the small guys have to deal with the same regulations which a lot of times uh isn't very helpful for them in terms of taxation and quantities right so if you want to make a higher alcohol beer over there you actually pay more in tax we 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 have the luxury over here you can make a billion percent you know unicorn juice and sell it for the same price as a bud light but in australia you know, has a scaling tax. So interestingly, that's actually a trouble in Canada too. So Unibrew, um, they make Fin de Monde and Modite and all those, those famous Belgian style beers in Ontario. Uh, all beer has to be priced the same no matter what, which means that they can't charge more, even though their beer costs more to make uh, and is right. much stronger. Uh, right. So I have some buddies who grew up in Ontario and they always buy uh, Unibrew, not because it was the best, although it probably was given their selection, um, but because it got them the drunkest, the fastest, at the at the lowest price, and then now they're all beer snobs, and I guess it was inevitable. Hey, if Unibrew is your worst beer that you can drink, you are living an amazing life. That's what right? I have to say about that. I just want to uh, finish up and say thanks so much for joining us, Coleman. It was really awesome to hear, um, you know, about your story and and about your tips and kind of the mindset that it really takes to stay healthy on the road. So again, the book you've got coming out is called Road Warrior. Uh, and where, where should people find that? Sure. Uh, it's at theroadwarriorbook.com. Theroadwarriorbook.com. And if people were interested in Ohm Coach, which is O-H-M, Coach, uh, where where should they find that? Uh, it also has a website. It's at ohmcoach.com. 
Cool. So you've heard it there, everybody, theroadwarriorbook.com, ohmcoach.com. You know, take control of your travels. Take control of your travels if you're a frequent traveler. Uh, Coleman sounds like he's got a lot of awesome insight. Um, Really appreciate your time, man. Thanks for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. I'm Andrew Smith. I'm signing out from California. This is Larry Heath from Sydney, Australia, signing off. If you want to learn more about Jetlag, the podcast, head to our social pages. You'll find us at Jetlag Pod, and send us a message if there's a topic that you want us to chat about or if you want to be a part of another episode of Jetlag in the future, send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. Head to jetlagthepodcast.com for more details.